when you can knock on the door of a world-leading Shakespeare expert and ask them for advice, but it takes you six weeks to get counselling, there is a natural frustration there. Cambridge is so resistant to change, but it's better to say something than to say nothing. I feel like they try, but they don't necessarily understand. Hello, and welcome to Switchboard, Varsity's flagship podcast. My name's Isabel Roberts. And I'm Maggie Fisher. Week five is a notoriously challenging time at Cambridge. And this year, it coincides with the beginning of a month-long national lockdown, making the week tougher than usual. Coronavirus has spotlighted the issue of student mental health, with many students struggling through self-isolation. Today, we'll look at the issue of mental health at Cambridge more broadly, examining the cultures and structures that shape student wellbeing. Just before we start, a quick content noting. This episode contains references to mental illness and suicide. We began by speaking to the BME campaign's mental health and disabilities officer, Aliyah Chipworth. So what has been your experience of mental health at Cambridge? I think personally it's been <laughs> it's been a fairly mixed experience. I think initially my college were fairly kind of open to the fact that I had had previous mental health experience and they did try to kind of help me with that but at the same time they definitely weren't prepared to like understand or like really I suppose help me with it in a way that kind of wasn't just like solely academic related so for me personally I've had mental health issues for a good eight years ish now and I think they didn't acknowledge that it would be longer term or that like for example mine would like constitute disability and stuff like that I think they were very much kind of thinking oh yeah it could be like short term or like it wouldn't affect me that much whereas that's just not the case I think coming back this year I think I've been a lot more kind of in control of like what I want and what I need compared to last year when it was very kind of just given to me without like proper explanation so like this year I've kind of helped tailor what I actually want and need (laughs) instead of just being told what to do which I think is a lot better because again like the college didn't really understand what I really needed (laughs) Mm. I mean I've also had some fairly bad experiences with Cambridge I had um, a fitness study procedure which was awful Mm. Um, and I appealed that and still ongoing stuff but I think generally I feel like they try, but they don't necessarily understand. Luke Naylor Parrott was a student at Cambridge who wanted to address the mental health difficulties at Cambridge and examine what was causing them. As such, he directed a documentary called Feeling Blue. Can we begin with you just introducing yourself and kind of telling us how you came to put this documentary and research together? Sure. So my name is Luke Naylor Parrott. Um, I graduated from Pembroke College in 2018 and uh, I directed a documentary about mental health at Cambridge called Feeling Blue. So we started Feeling Blue in March 2018 and I think there was at the time, and I think still is, a sense in which conversations about mental health sort of burst out of every corner of, of the university, whether that's uh, you know official policy minutes or, or just chats over coffee and wine and even in the gym occasionally. Um, and it sort of felt like all of these conversations were happening in, in independently. So we thought, let's let's put some of them together. And that snowballed into uh, 70 students contributing alumni, experts, freedom of information requests, whistleblowers, 
memes, sort of a year's worth of work. And yeah, we ended up with a feature length documentary and about 60 pages of findings. And so like, what are your key findings from your research? So the thing that got a lot of traction was our freedom of information requests. A lot of people pointed out the fact that we'd found that uh, one million pounds, just over that, was spent by colleges on scholarship awards, which are awards given to students who uh, perform well in exams, compared to just over 600k for university counselling service budget. I think within that, though, I found sort of other, other aspects of the findings interesting. So the way that different colleges log their mental health spending is really interesting. So some will have a figure, some just don't hold the information, and some just say, like, look at our website for more details. And I think that sort of points towards the, the inconsistencies between colleges and the, the, the different welfare provisions. Um, and given that 21% of Cambridge students are pooled, I think that was, for me anyway, the, the most lasting finding was, was the discrepancies. And so what common themes kind of emerged when you were speaking to students in Cambridge about their experiences with mental health? It's hard to condense. As I mentioned, 120,000 words worth of transcripts. There were lots of themes, but I think three really stuck out to me. First is the availability and consistency of advice and roles. So basically, who do you go for for what? Um, I think there's, there's a split between the central administration and colleges. There's splits between faculty. There's splits between academic and pastoral staff. And, and with each of those splits come grey areas. And there is nothing more heartbreaking and infuriating when you're in a really bad place to be told three different things by three different people. One of our respondents said, uh, you know, when you are in one of these dark places, just getting out of bed is a big deal. And it's not the best time to be a self-advocate. Um, I think also just simply safeguarding and staff training isn't good enough. Our whistleblowers talked about huge gaps. Um, and I think lastly and most importantly is just a sense that empathy isn't a word used very much in administration documents and in people's experiences. And I think that if the first emotion that you respond to a student struggling with is not empathy, there is a serious fundamental problem. I think that was a theme that, that came out in a lot of the, the bad stories. Alaya takes us through how these mental health issues at Cambridge can often disproportionately affect BME students. You're the BME Mental Health and Disabilities Officer. So do you think that BME students are more likely to suffer from mental health issues at Cambridge and why do you think that is? I would say yes. I think there's quite a few like different reasons. I mean, for one, for a lot of BME students, I know personally it was a bit of a culture shock. Cambridge is a, a very kind of niche environment that a lot of people just generally aren't used to. And I've heard like a lot of people feeling like they felt they're more aware of their differences in Cambridge or like they felt the only representation of their race. So they had to be like really good or people would like look down on them or that people felt like they had to challenge stereotypes. So, um, I feel like all those things kind of combined, you're kind of hyper aware of your identity and how it impacts you. And I feel like that can make life at Cambridge really stressful and kind of more difficult than it needs to be. And especially I think like imposter syndrome is like a massive thing at Cambridge anyways. But I think as a BME student, you have that sort of extra dimension of feeling like you might just feel like a quota or like mm. kind of like they're just there to like improve their statistics. And often it can feel like you're like constantly having to prove yourself. Do you think it's harder for BME students to navigate the support structures at Cambridge? I would say, yeah. I mean, for example, like 
a lot of BME students, for example, would feel more comfortable like speaking to a BME counsellor or like someone who might kind of understand kind of their experiences more. And like even I know personally, like my tutor, for example, is lovely, but I know to an extent he wouldn't fully understand some of the like racist things that happen or like microaggressions. And it can be really difficult to kind of find someone to talk to about that aside from friends who are also experiencing like their own difficulties. They're starting to kind of acknowledge the issues, but not kind of how it actually impacts BME students. What are the main things Cambridge needs to do to improve wellbeing, both for all students and particularly BME students? Cambridge Option, for one, has a very reactive sort of um, attitude to support. So, for example, your DOS might or tutor might get in contact with you after like they've noticed that you've missed a supervision or a practical or whatever, instead of checking in on you and I feel like that's something that even if it's just like a five second email also in terms of like support I feel like a lot of support isn't kind of to an extent well advertised a lot of people like know about different services that are available but you might not know how to access them or like what they can do or what like to expect and I feel like I know personally that would be a barrier for me wanting to get support yeah, especially with, like I mentioned, like the BME counsellors at the University Counselling Service, a lot of students didn't actually realise there were BME counsellors, which is not great. A survey that was done a few years ago noted that a lot of BME students would like to go to BME counsellors. So I feel like it's stuff like raising awareness of that and the support that is specifically available for students is really helpful. We posed the same question about what Cambridge could do to Luke. Where to start? Um, okay, so so I'm not going to say the obvious one, which is more funding, but but more funding. You know, discrepancies between colleges can only really be solved with help for that short that funding shortfall. I think better safeguarding training for staff, uh, and that's for for staff that are new, but also for staff that have been there forever. You need to retrain. I think making information channels clearer, making transparency channels clearer, and I think one that that are our producer and composer Jay mentioned that I, I love is creating an alumni fund for welfare and for mental health because I am in my first job and I am slightly reticent to give money back given that I still have to pay off an awful lot of student fees but I would give money in a heartbeat to a mental health and well-being fund and mm. I think that there are plenty of funds that alumni can give to for travel and for grants and for research make one for, for mental health and well-being and watch how many people donate to that. And so you mentioned funds there and in, indeed like Cambridge do often point to the idea of some kind of limited funds although quite inconsistently about maybe that being the root of the problem but then again you also do find in your research that there's a bit of a disparity between the uni spending on well-being and students experience where they're coming third out of UK unis and then coming 27th in terms of student satisfaction with those services why do you think that disparity kind of exists? It is very strange being asked that question because I asked it so many times when making this documentary. And, and I think the answer is tough. I think that part of that being 27th is to do with the culture. I think that the highs and lows at Cambridge are relentless. And I think that there are some dark places within that system. You know, you can point to eight week terms, to finals to that sort of general feeling of, of pressure in libraries, the number of libraries that I've been to where there was crying, my God. Um, I think there's also a disparity of services there. Um, and I think that comes out mm. that, you know, whether you're at Trinity or at Selwyn, there's, there's a huge difference in your experience. And I, I think that also comes into the question of spending a lot because like, there isn't just one pot to, to put the money in. 
you, you have to, as the university fund, the university counseling service, you also have to help, you know, um, individual colleges. I think also just, just as a last point, Cambridge University students look around at the incredible facilities they have and the incredible teaching and the incredible job prospects. And, and then they look at the comparative mental health facilities and you know when you can knock on the door of a world-leading Shakespeare expert and ask them for advice but it takes you six weeks to get counselling there is a natural frustration there and I think I think that might be the student satisfaction side of that. And then one of the things that the university also will often say with regards to mental health issues is that these students are coming with predisposed issues this is kind of part and parcel of like academic success um, getting into Cambridge what do you kind of say to that? Do you buy that? And do you think that's a fair response? I think that's a million dollar question. And I think that there is in part something there. I think it would be interesting to see some research, whether there's correlation between ability to work hard and uh, mental health issues. Um, I think also there's something about the, the Cambridge myth, the prestige, the old buildings, the history that adds pressure on. And I think if you're drawn to that and then you get pushed down by that pressure, I think it can be doubly painful but really I think that the whole question is is moot like why should it matter right if if there are good provisions of training you know institutional flexibility empathy most importantly proclivities and and predispositions towards mental health concerns shouldn't matter I think it's it's like Mm. you know that they talk about asthma in COVID you know if you're asthmatic you're more prone to COVID but doctors don't go well you know you're more prone to know that they put extra provisions in extra guidelines extra care and I think you should treat it the same what do you feel needs to happen for Cambridge to change and to make important changes on mental health given that you obviously with your team put together this documentary you put together these research findings and I think from your report you've put together a clear list of questions the university needs to to respond to but it doesn't appear at least that there's been much change I think you hit the nail on the head there so in May 2019, we handed our proposals to the pro-vice-chancellor in person. We had endorsements from local charities and student unions and even the, the uni rugby club, the women's rugby club. Uh, we got nominated for the Mind Media Awards. It's been viewed like 17,000 times. We have had nothing in response officially from the university. And obviously they, they, they weren't legally bound to do anything. We weren't owed anything. But I think your question about what do they need to do better that is a sign of what of what they need to do better. You know, we explicitly said that it was the start of a dialogue, not the end. We offered numerous times to be chased in our emails and we still got nothing official. I think the thing that can change is the university could hold the students that speak out about this and the students who, t- who share their stories and the students who, who fight that cause, they could hold them in less contempt because that is the only answer that, that I can see from from giving no response. If the documentary was a Cambridge student, it would have matriculated in 2018 and it, it would nearly be graduating by now. That is ridiculous. A whole life cycle has gone past since us making this thing. And there's a debate about how much has changed. You're ans- asking me questions that I asked interviewees back in, in 2018. So I think that's something that can change. They can open themselves up. They can, they can have a commission. They can have a, an anonymous survey sent around to alumni and to families and to current students and admit that there may be things wrong and, and take the first step to say we are open to change. Clearly, as Luke highlights, there needs to be structural change to address mental health concerns at Cambridge. A key concern for students are the short and intense eight-week terms that often lead students to feel burnt out in week five. This led Karis McGonagall, as Cambridge Natural Sciences student, 
to create a petition calling for a reading week to be introduced. What are week five blues? So as far as I know, um, I haven't had to experience many of them thanks to COVID, but they are when you hit week five in your week eight term and everything just kind of goes really downhill, whether that be kind of your mood is just wrecked, maybe your sleep patterns, work is just building up and you just really need to pick me up. Yeah, I was first introduced to it in like Nicholas, as you do, like the freshers induction is, don't worry, week five blues will happen, but we're here to help you. But I think once it got to then, I actually understood what week five blues was myself. And I was like, this isn't normal. But yeah, that's what I think of it. And do you think that like, because it's talked about so much, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, almost kind of like a placebo because you think it's going to happen? Um, I'm not sure about that, to be honest. Uh, with me in Michaelmas, I kind of forgot about week five blues, whether that was just because I was busy um, and like people were talking about it and events were being held. Like in the Downing site, there was free donuts for week five blues, which was lovely. But um, I kind of felt fine. But then it wasn't until week six when I was like, oh, I think I've got delayed week five blues. And it was kind of just hitting that point in turn where I was really missing my family and um, work was just bundling on. I don't think it's a like a kind of self-prophecy thing. It's more of a we've built up a culture around it and we've made it seem so normal when it really shouldn't be. Because when you've got people who are struggling already with mental health, um, you're making it kind of seem like having a depressive week is is okay and it's fun and we can we can make it um work but it just normalizes like the really rigorous um attitude at Cambridge where you're supposed to work hard constantly for eight weeks straight and then and then work even more over the holidays and there isn't that kind of there isn't a chance to take a breath so you created a petition to introduce a reading week when this five-week blues would normally hit. Uh, why did you decide to do that? It was actually really random. I um, I decided to do it as kind of, so the conversation came up as kind of a joke. It was around when re- week five blues and I was talking to a friend um, on the way uh, back from a lecture or practical and we were just talking about it and I was like, maybe we should just start a petition, get a reading weekend. Other universities have it. Why don't we have it? Um, Oxbridge doesn't need to be special at everything. But then I actually did take it seriously. And I was like, no one else is doing it. When when I was looking into it, I was like, is there one already active? And I saw there was one that had been done about five years ago, I think. And it was a really big campaign, a lot bigger than like where the live petition got to. But like uh, people like boycotted week five, um, basically, and it looked really impressive. But obviously, it hadn't gotten anywhere. Um, so I thought it needed a kickstart. And even if I was just the person to start the conversation, I just wanted it to go somewhere and have people kind of at least think about it rather than just sitting back and accepting it as Cambridge wants us to. And um, what was the response to that petition? I think overall it was a really good response. People were signing it and some people loved it and I um, what really made my day like I honestly like went around on Crowd9 was someone wrote me a kind bridge on Facebook um, about it and I was like so wholesome but there were there were mixed reviews um things start cropping up on Campfest as they do. I think it actually highlighted the kind of minority of students who think in that kind of elitist manner. I I think one comment was, if you came here to change Cambridge, why did you come here? 
go somewhere else, which is obviously the completely wrong attitude. Um, we are students of a of a great institution, and if like we're here for change and to and to make change and to make progress, and um, what better place to start than where you are right now? Some sometimes I got a lukewarm response, like people were just like, eh. Um, some reasons it was I don't want like an extra week that I have to spend away from home, or financial costs, or the worries that that a reading week would just be. Um, basically an extra work week where supervisors would pile on the work and the lecturers would provide extra additional materials or maybe like a, another practical thrown in so it's just adding on the work but I think if a reading week were to go ahead there should definitely be like a clear rule that a reading week is a reading week not an extra work week. Yeah and I think as well you do realise when you're talking to people from home and you say oh yeah the terms are eight weeks and their response you see how like it is actually quite a strange thing to have such a short term yeah I said that to a friend yesterday actually which was really weird I was, um, because two weeks isolation that how it was cropped up in conversation and I was like that's a quarter of my term and they were like excuse me and I was like yeah we're really weird um is there anything else you wanted to say I think I'd like to say if to anyone who does potentially listen to this and if you are struggling with work and or mental health, both or, or or neither, that like it, try not to be afraid to speak up. And I think yeah, like it's hard because Cambridge is so resistant to change. But it's better to say something than to say nothing. In this case, <laughs> not in all cases, of course. Julie Bailey is a disability resource centre mentor and a PhD student in the education department. She talks to us about what mentoring is and emphasises the need for it for all students across the university. But what does a mentor do? For instance, how does it differ to a counsellor? The main difference is that we're there with the student all the time. So it's a generally it's a weekly meeting, but it's completely flexible around a student's needs, could be more frequent or less frequent. And we start working with the student at the beginning of their course and work with them all the way through. So instead of coming in, as a counsellor might do, to deal with a particular uh, mental health issue, we are basically sort of going on that journey through the, through the time at Cambridge with a student. And what that does is it gives us a much bigger um, idea of a scope across their, the student's life. So we, we have a, also have a broader focus. So not just mental health, it'll be sort of work, um, general life um, and planning ahead. So it's quite different. Although we may have similar conversations at some points, it's a very different approach to counselling. And do you think everyone would benefit from having mentoring? And if you do think that, how would it be achieved practically? I absolutely think that everybody would benefit from um, mentoring. I think when you break it down, there there's so many different activities that we do, but when you break it down, some of those activities are of just checking in and providing support, don't require any specialist skills or knowledge, they're just a case of finding the right person. So for some aspects of mentoring, we are just the right person there all the time. And I, you know, I've often thought about, you know, how do we, how, how would we spread this out in a, in a different way? And I think that there are massive opportunities within the collegiate system, within a college community of matching people up with the kind of support that you need. 
And when you, and it might be that that, that takes multiple forms. So one thing that does do the, the job of mentoring is often through, um, in previous years, through the exam period, colleges, my college is, is Newnham, so Newnham have just um, tea breaks, coffee afternoons, just getting people together, taking time out, having a cup of coffee and a biscuit just to, just to switch perspectives for a while. So that aspect of, of mentoring, just that pause in your week can be easily delivered when when it's easy to be um, with people in person, harder remotely, but those aspects can, can be done. The other aspect of just having somebody who knows a bit about the pressures you're going through but isn't in your life, that's also possible within a, within a college system and the, the, the college parent system, um, college families sort of do, do part of that job as well so some of this it is happening and there is there is aspect there are aspects to it that that all students do have in their provision but there could it's just a case of sort of pushing that slightly further i was wondering if you had any thoughts on the tutor system do you think that that is adequately providing a kind of mentor or counseling service or or do you think more could be done there I think the, the idea behind a, a tutor system where you have somebody who is not your not involved in your department, not your director of studies, is absolutely a, a really, really useful role. They do provide that, that support and they do provide that signposting service. And I think it's, and it is extremely valuable. It's so time limited. So you know, tutors have, uh, are so limited for the time that they have. So it's, it's finding a way to, to add to the time that's available. What you also get, one of the other things from mentoring that that um, in common with tutors is just that opportunity to talk to somebody who's just been around a long time. No offence to my fellow um, mentors, many of us have been around, but been around in Cambridge a long time, particularly for new students. So a new student going to their, their tutor with an issue is tapping into those sort of, you know, that, that much bigger perspective, that longer term perspective. So there are massive overlap, but the 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 difference is that in mentoring you have that protected time, you know, you've got an hour a week that's there. I mean, I know that a lot of tutors are very available to their to their students, but their time is limited. The difference with mentoring is that, that it's been identified that that time is available. And I'm sure that, you know, if, if tutors had an hour a week to spend with their with their students they would be able to go into the kind of depth that we go into. And if you don't have that time, then it becomes more of a kind of like problem solving, let, let's solve this and move on. Whereas if you have, if you know that that time is there every week, you can take a different approach. Are there any factors specific to Cambridge that may kind of increase mental health problems? I mean, the eight-week terms of one of them, that inflexibility. Um, but one of the, the issues that Cambridge has in in common with other institutions where you you have been at the the top of your game to, in order to to access it and, you, and you've you've um, been achieving really highly and and that creates a, a, a huge anxiety and about producing your best work from the start and that really hampers that flexibility Canthes is an anonymous student social media platform. 
An anonymous admin tells us how the nature of student submissions has recently shifted to reflect increasing difficulties managing mental health. His voice has been distorted to hide his identity. Could you explain what CAMFES is? CAMFES is the largest Cambridge anonymous confessions page. So basically anyone can submit anything they want essentially anonymously which goes through to sort of our online portal. We can see everything that's been submitted and we choose what posts get through and then they get posted to a Facebook page just listed with like a number essentially completely anonymously and then anyone can comment on them and they're just a standard Facebook post. What kind of submissions do you usually get? So usually it's sort of a combination of memes and your generic sort of slightly stupid silly stuff. But then there's also when there's something big going on that affects the Cambridge community we often get a lot of that so in the past when the strikes were going on there were lots of comments on Kusu at the time's stance then with coronavirus there's been lots of stuff on that and then we also just get generally a good few posts of people who I think are just quite struggling and don't really know where else to turn so they just use CAMFES as a way of screaming into the void per se. And so how do you decide what submissions to post? So I think all the admins approach this slightly differently. Usually what we do is when there's memes and general stuff about, if we think they're funny, they're not outright offensive and they don't attack a protected group, we usually just let them through. But yeah, there's sort of those aren't too hard to let through. When there's a bigger issue, we usually, there's a couple of us as, as admins, we discuss it in a group, decide how we're going to approach it. We try to be as unbiased as possible. So my way of approaching that is using the strikes again as an example. So that was a more controversial topic. I sort of look through all of the submissions, try to see how many there were, which were in favour, how many were sort of against, and try to sort of send posts through proportionally to that. And also when it comes to those more controversial things, generally... If you can tell someone's put more thought into their view and isn't just sort of spewing out rubbish, essentially, it's more likely to get let through. With some of the more serious stuff, like I was saying before, where people are just using CAMFES as an outlet, where they may be feeling a bit down or something, it's hard to know when to post these often, but we try to post as many as we can just because we often feel that someone's posting those kind of things to canvas because they're looking for someone who can help them and if lots of people can see it then you know hopefully they can but there have been times where we just don't think it's appropriate but it's normally quite obvious what should and what shouldn't go through if your post doesn't get sent through sorry we do really just get so many a day and it's impossible to let them all through have you found that there's been a change in the nature of the submissions that you've received recently Yes, I think certainly over the summer we were quite quiet in general because there weren't many people at uni, we weren't getting that many posts. And I think those submissions we were getting through over the summer definitely changed in content to be less Cambridge-oriented and more just the general situation of the world at the time. But then since getting back to uni, certainly there's been a lot more posts than I've ever seen that's specifically to relate to people feeling quite isolated and lonely often. Lots of people complaining about their neighbours, for instance, maybe breaking national or college policy and having people over in their room. People are approaching coronavirus very differently, and I think that's really showing in our posts. 
yeah, definitely the biggest difference has been much more people complaining about loneliness and isolation and that sort of thing. Do you think that CAMFES plays a kind of role in helping students manage their mental health? I think for some people who don't have a particularly strong support network, it probably can. For lots of people, their friends are the first people they turn to when they're feeling low. And I think for those who maybe don't have that close-knit group of friends that they're happy talking to, and they just want to sort of vent and get their thoughts out there, CAMFES can be a good place for that. And if they want specific help with something, nine times out of ten, there'll be someone in Cambridge who's been through a similar situation and will know where to turn and can give this person advice in the comments. So yeah, I think on that front, CAMFES can certainly be quite useful. From reading the submissions that are put to you, what, if anything, do you think Cambridge could be doing to support students better with regards to mental health? So I think the number one thing we see to do with mental health, and always have done even before the recent uptick in it, is people feeling lonely and isolated. Um, I know anecdotally, I've seen colleges refer to bedrooms as bed study rooms in that you're here to sleep and work and sleep and work and nothing else. And I think that is a cultural thing in Cambridge. I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. I think also lots of the universities, more central services, whether that's the Disability Resource Centre, whether it's the university councillors, you get lots of people complaining about those often in submissions. I think there needs to be a whole culture shift away from you're here to work. And I think there needs to be a real shift in how academics support people and you know, people's bosses, people's tutors support them, not just academically, but also mentally as well. Also, when you look at things like intermissions and things like that, we get people on campus saying, oh, my college is encouraging me to intermit because I'm struggling. I think that sort of culture as well is very, very damaging. It does ultimately boil down to changing culture is needed and also just more resources available and better funded resources from the Central University. Obviously, we know that mental health difficulties do extend beyond Cambridge, and many people say that we're in a nationwide mental health crisis. A big question, but what do you think needs to be done to respond to that? Obviously, there are lots of like initiatives and like raising awareness of like mental health and difficulties that we might have. But I also think raising awareness is all like well and good. There's not much point in raising awareness if there's not much that can be done about it if you're experiencing difficulties. In the UK, the kind of disparities across the country of availability of like mental health services of waiting times I feel like that is a massive issue there's no point in raising awareness if no one can get support for it they do encourage you to get support but like waiting lists can sometimes be like years at that point like you're probably like really aware that you're having difficulties but there's not much you can do about it and I also think the way we kind of Again, I feel like it's in a way similar to Cambridge, where we kind of approach mental health is kind of more from a perspective of what it takes from us and kind of only like acknowledging it once we realise that it's gotten to like a bad place and we can't do what we usually mm. would do. But I think we need to be, again, proactive in looking after our mental health, but also we need to not better understanding. 
I suppose in a way awareness around how we are doing at the time instead of looking back and being like oh yeah that was awful I feel like it would be great to kind of recognize in the moment or like beforehand and like have strategies to notice like when we are struggling at that time instead of like waiting until we really notice that it's gotten bad. Clearly struggling with mental health is a problem that extends beyond Cambridge affecting students across the country. Almost half of all UK students have experienced a serious behavioural or mental health problem for which they needed professional help. The coronavirus pandemic has exacerbated this problem, with many students having to isolate totally alone without their usual support systems. And this has had devastating consequences. A recent TAB article revealed that at least one UK university student has died every week since the start of term. Universities need to do more to support student mental health, especially for those isolating. They need to ensure that they reach out to students and provide regular access to counsellors and opportunities for virtual socialising. But it's also clear from our interviews that there are specific structures and cultures at Cambridge that need to be addressed to combat poor student mental health. In particular, the eight-week term, the discrepancies between the training that college staff such as tutors have. Additionally, the university needs to provide tailored support for BME students and well-advertised avenues of support for all students. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, please do seek support from the Samaritans on 116123, Student Minds or any of the university avenues of support, such as the University Counselling Service. Thank you for listening. You can read more on this topic at varsity.co.uk. Thank you to our contributors, BME Campaign Mental Health and Disabilities Officer Elijah Chipworth, Director of Feeling Blue Luke Naylor Perrot, DRC Mentor Julie Bailey, Creator of the Reading Week Petition Karis McGonagall, and an anonymous Canvas admin. Thanks also to our production team, Matthew Cavallini, Georgia Goebel, Thea Melton, Tilly Head, Cameron White, Kate Pruden, Theo Pitts-Patrick, Alex Oxford, Juliet Babinski, Sorrel Fenelon and Matthew Jeffries. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to our podcast or visit our Facebook page where you can leave any thoughts.